Liban Hassan is many things. He's a writer, poet, father, and has a degree in public relations. But his journey to get there was far from easy. See, the first time Liban felt handcuffs on his wrists, he was seven years old. I remember my, my first experience with police was when I was in the second grade. There was a kid he was beefing with at school. And so like a lot of seven-year-olds, Lee took the other kid's toy home as payback. When the kid's mom found out, she contacted the school who contacted the police. And the school allowed the police to come to me. And uh, so I'm there home with the toy and police officers come to my home. And they put me in handcuffs. Got me in the car and they, told, like, and they gave me the speech about, you know, this could be your life. And I, I remember it so clearly. It feels like you're being taken from your, like, home like a kidnapping almost you know like you don't want this person to be here and you don't want them to take you and but they're going to do you remember what they said to you specifically just like that like this is going to be your life if you don't make better decisions you know it was one of those decision speeches at that age i was like i took it right like you're going to take it dry but because you don't know any better Hi, my name is Hussein, and you're listening to the debut season of 25 Northeast, a project produced in Edmonton, Alberta, where we turn 25 degrees northeast to pray towards the Qibla in Mecca. This is a podcast by Islamic Family exploring the Canadian Muslim experience, where every season we tell true stories about this experience through a single theme. And for our first season, we're telling stories about encounters with the Canadian prison system. The reason for this is because of one simple, striking fact. Muslims comprise more than 7% of the federal prison population in Canada, despite being only about 3% of the national population. And there are all sorts of complex reasons for this, but due to shame and stigma, a lot of times this issue is swept under the rug, which is unfortunate because incarcerated and newly released Muslims largely lack support from our communities on the outside. And so to open up this conversation a bit, we're going to hear from all sorts of voices, from people who have been incarcerated to imams who provide them spiritual support to academics analyzing policies which impact Muslims behind bars. First, we're going to hear from Liban. But to understand his journey and encounter with the justice system, we need to turn back the clock by about 20 years. By the way, there's some strong language in this episode that's been beeped out, just in case you're listening in public or with others. Mogadishu, a once beautiful city split by a front line dividing disputed clan territories. Liban was born in Somalia, but came to Canada when he was three years old. This was because of the armed conflict there in the 90s when the government collapsed. And so to keep him safe, Lee's parents sent him as a toddler to live with his relatives in Ottawa. Till about 96, 97, nobody really thought they were going to stay here. It was like short term. You know, we were just getting away from something and things were going to go back to normal and we were going to get out of here. I grew up with my aunt. Um, When the war happened, my mom gave my brother and I uh, to my aunt, uh, custody over, to bring us to Canada. And so we came here. I'm older now than she was then. I always, you know, that that little tidbit, it hits me in a very like deep place because it's like they gave up their their future to, to raise us. They were at that age, right, where it's the world is their oyster. And so they had, her and my uncle had just gotten married. Catastrophe of an event, you know, and you have to go to the other side of the world and start a life in this place where you don't know the law. You don't know the language, you don't know the customs, you know, and you got to start fresh with these kids that are not even yours. Um, They're your sister's kids, you know. That's a tough pill to swallow, man. You got to give up your future. 
so he lived with his aunt until he was 11. By then, his mother came over, and then his father a few years later. Likely explained, at the time, many people in the Somali diaspora thought they'd go back home, eventually. But they never did. And so because of this, there was this persistent feeling of uncertainty and a lack of belonging that touched his community and impacted Liban's childhood. It's like being in limbo. You don't have an answer necessarily as to what's going to happen. The future's unknown. And then you raise kids here and your kids acclimate to here. And it's like you were a bunch of like exports that never got to go back. This feeling of being in limbo, of being in between worlds, but not really belonging to either, it wasn't just because of being a refugee, but also because of the way that their new neighbors treated them. I knew from Jump Street, like as far as I can remember, I knew like I was an outsider here. And then growing up in the 90s in Canada, in Ontario, in Ottawa, the white people made you know that you weren't from here, you know? Uh, the, the teachers let you know you weren't from here. Or at least let you know you weren't from here. Is there a specific, like, episode that, like, exemplifies that? We got punished harder than other kids. Like, these middle-aged white women were our teachers, right? And they didn't know how to deal with these young, rambunctious black kids, I guess. They, we got punished harder. I remember I'd spend days and weeks in the in the principal's office with my, like, you know, like, desk against the wall. And my, my family doesn't know. It's like, I go to school, and then I go to the principal's office. And for weeks, for weeks, they used to kill us with in-school suspension. Yeah. Academically, it was really good when I was younger. Like, school was just like an easy kind of thing for me. Not to toot my own horn, but I remember, you know, sometimes I get a question right, but just the way I answered it might have been a little arrogant or, or quick or... Um, and the teacher would get upset with me and she'd face my, like, turn my table around and make me face this way while the kids are facing facing her for the whole day, like from morning to the, to the end of the day. And that takes a toll on you, man, as a kid. Like, I, things like that, like, in my 30s now, I still randomly remember it. He tells me about another teacher whose treatment of him, and remember, he's a little kid at the time, became an essential part of his origin story. My grade six teacher actually is the reason I became a writer. I had made a paper and he gave me like a, a really bad grade, like C or something. And like, I always got A's and B's, B's very rarely in my writing. That was, that was always my thing. And so when he gave me the C and, and he followed it with that comment, you know, like I, cause I challenged him. I said, why are you giving me the C? And like, he looked me dead in the face kinda, and, and he said, you're never going to master the English language. And then those words stuck with me, man. Like the next year I got, I had gotten published for some, for something that I did. That's where it all started. And from then I was just like, I'm going as far as I can with this thing, you know? So as a kid, writing became one of Lee's escapes and his passion. Writing was my thing. Like I read a lot and I, and I wrote a lot and I'd always get like my sister to grade them. She's like, just get out of here. You got an A plus. And I just, I, I just wanted the A plus, you know? And then I'd go outside. Do you remember the first thing you wrote that you were super proud of? I wrote a poem. I remember when I was like 11. And my brother, like, he's uh, six years older than me. He's like kind of the only role model I had when I was younger. And so like, I like, worshiped the ground he walks on, you know? Like, it was the coolest older brother. The whole neighborhood's like, they liked him. All the kids like, gravitated towards him. And he didn't know that I had this, like, skill. He found something I wrote and he came out of the room like, who wrote this? And I said, I wrote it. And he was always tough on me, you know? And he just looked at me and said, say, well, why? 
And I was like, why I wrote it? And then he's like, don't stop. You know, and I was like the nicest thing he's ever said. To this day, like I remember that was the nicest thing he's ever said to me. As Lee got older, it wasn't just the racism from the cops and the teachers he noticed, but an entire system that often left him and kids like him neglected. He tells me once about a conversation he had with an old co-worker about exactly this that became heated. I had this conversation once like in, on the oil patch with the West African guy. He said, you Somali boys, you know, you guys come to this country and you guys make us look bad, you know? Mm. And he pissed me off. Like He said it with like this snark. I'm like, you applied to come here, you know? Did you flee here? No, you immigrated. So what does that mean? You filled out an application and you said, hey, I want to go to Canada. You had to prove to Canada that you had enough money in your bank account. And so, and then you got a call one day, you know, like, hey, you come and you cut your tickets. You had enough money to cut tickets, you know? It's like, and then you got here and you kind of slid into this middle-class life. You didn't live in the hoods, you know, with the rest of us where... We were packed on top of each other in these towers and like piss-smelling freaking elevators. And, you know, like you didn't live this. You weren't there. You know, most of us are not immigrants. We're refugees. So, you know, it's like, what is a refugee? It's somebody that fleed from a war or some sort of oppression, you know, and they came here seeking asylum. And so those people, you know, Canada would take them in, you know, you, but you get put into these communities which are like bottom feeder communities right like we're all crammed into like these these hoods and that's starting at the bottom and what comes with that is like schools that are around those are underfunded to deal with this poverty the parents in these early refugee communities worked multiple jobs all while juggling their own traumas and stresses which meant unintentionally that the kids were often left on their own the people that are raising you like your parents they don't have the time to be chasing after you for the most part like we we went to school and learned on our own. We came home and did our homework on our own. Like we didn't have our parents to really help us because they're busy going to work. Like by the time you're coming in, they're going to their second job, you know, like to make ends meet. These days, governments all over the world are focusing on affordable childcare solutions precisely to address situations like this so that kids aren't left on their own when their parents are working. But growing up, all Iban saw around him were cuts to after-school programs and initiatives. Every year I, I was growing up, like the programs in the neighborhood were gone. Like the, by the time I was like 11, 12, like we had karate after school, maybe once every, like, you know, I remember, I think it was like one year we had karate after school. And after that, it's a bunch of kids that have idle time, you know, and, and not, it was no resources. We're outside facing the elements and we don't have nothing. And they ask us why, what happens? That was a reality, a shared reality we all had, you know? It was like we raised ourselves and we wandered those hallways. We kind of like uh, banded it. And all of a sudden, you know, labels start getting thrown around. And, and then there's another thing. You come to this country and you don't look like the majority of the people. So who do you identify with? You identify with what you look like. And what's that was hip-hop, was hip-hop culture. For us, was the closest thing that looked like to us. By taking on hip hop as a culture, we also took on the adversities of, of hip hop that, that hip hop is talking about. And so, 
although we don't have a history of like you know slavery and you know like kid 400 years of conditioning like if we get pulled over like that white cop is still going to look at you like the black guy he's not going to look at you like oh this guy is you know he's a he's a chemist from somalia you know what i mean but we understood that it was the, to, to the white people the same you know to the common white person the same so by taking on hip-hop we also took on that responsibility shared responsibility you know of like like fight the system and like you know and so we and us being Somalis you know the brave hearts we took that and ran with it like we we are known to be very standoffish with the legal system and legalities in general there's an honorable sort of reasoning behind it in my opinion after high school Lee moved to Alberta for university but things were hard out there I was here in Calgary and things didn't really work out with my living situation and I needed to come up with money like quickly. And so an opportunity arose to make a couple dollars over in Saskatchewan, you know, doing illegal activities. And, and I, I said, oh, okay. And at the time I was, I was really engulfed in like, you know, hip hop and, and, you know, we're being oppressed by the, the, the system and there's a, there's a, a truth to it, but there's also a fallacy to it. And so with all these feelings built up over the years that he's explained, everything from dealing with racism to lack of belonging, he made the decision to go to Saskatchewan. One of the days there would go on to change his entire life. It started out like any other, with Lee and his crew driving around town. You're just doing your swerves, like you're going to see people, you're making sales and your eyes are not open, so I guess I must have been, I was being tailed. And you stand out like a sore thumb, like you're in this place where people that look like you are not the norm. And our habits are like, you know, we had our own little habits where we'd rent hotel rooms and, and make a mess. And so it, it didn't last long for us. We weren't, we weren't masterminds at what it is we were doing, what it was we were doing. But so I guess this like sunset and I must have went out and I was in the car. We were a bunch of group of us and we got pulled over. So I, because I didn't have a criminal record, like when we got arrested, I was the only one that was like, let go. Like everybody else had a record. And so they, they held on to a bunch of the homies. But for me, I got let go. About a week goes by and it looks like nothing is going to come from that stop until one day he's in his apartment and this happens. I had just gotten in. I remember and I sat down, turned on the TV. I was like Jeopardy, you know, a big Jeopardy fan. So I'm sitting there, my Jeopardy's coming on, you know? And uh, it was boom, 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 boom at the door. And like, I was, I never even think it, I never even thought it was the cops. I'm like, it's another faction of guys who are coming to rob us. You know, in my head, that's what it was. They kicked down that door. They knocked that down. They were like, on my tail by the time I got to the balcony like the guy just pulled me back inside put me on the ground kicked me up uh, I remember like, he broke my ribs like yeah. when they rage you they beat you and so for the second time in his life Liban had handcuffs put on him this time for drug related charges and like that was the last time I seen the outside world for for like nine months and that's how it always is right you never find out today's gonna be the day uh, you're gonna go to jail it never works it's never like that when you actually just get arrested it's like 
it's like any other day you might have had plans to go see your girlfriend later or you might have been making plans to send some money back home to your mom you know which is something that we all did as like these young kids you know to the outside world we're like a bunch of knuckleheads who are good for nothing but like we're supporting whole families you know entire families based off of our knucklehead decisions they're taking our money not knowing that where it comes from oh we just came back from the oil sands or something you sent home five grand your mother's not going to question her beautiful son it's funny now like look back at it like we're dumb ass kids, but that's exactly it. We were just kids, you know? They charged him, but the trial to determine his sentence didn't happen yet. So either he could post bail or stay in jail until the trial. Only there was one hitch. Lee didn't have his permanent address in the province, and he had moved out of his place in Alberta. So that wasn't an option either. How was that? Like, you know, I got put in jail, and because I wasn't from Saskatchewan, every time I went up for bail, I didn't have a, an address I could come out to. He didn't want to post his family's address in Ottawa either and to let them know what was going on. And so Lee only had one choice. Spend nine months in Saskatoon Correctional Center. There is nothing on this that I've experienced in this world that is akin to waking up the next day in jail. And then it hit you. Like, you know, that moment where you're just like, ah, oh, you wake up, you open your eyes, you're like, this actually did happen, you know? It's like, I didn't dream this. This is my reality, you know? And it just, like, it sinks. It's like the, the metaphorically, the, the, the door slamming and the, you know, locking vibe that, that I had. It's like, there's nothing like that feeling where you're just like, oh, it's, it's really happening. One of the things that crossed my mind at this point, and I'm sure you're thinking the same thing, is why didn't he just tell his family where he was so they could post bail? So I asked him. Why didn't you tell your family initially, like when you first landed there? I never told my family about a lot of stuff, you know? Um, any good immigrant child lies to his family, you know? We're not accustomed to like telling them, oh, I, I, I actively do the wrong thing, you know? You, you'll lie. Was it to protect them? Yeah, it's just to, you know, it's to protect their view of you, you know, not to shatter their their image of you, you know, like, oh, we lost him. So it's like, you know, you're almost doing the parenting thing by by lying to them, you know, sparing them the, the gruesome details. And so that's why Lee never told his family where he was. In Saskatoon, he got put in a pod, a block of cells with around 30 other men, all wearing green and gray prison clothes. He spends nights sleeping on a bunk bed. And that's where I lived. If you were cool or if the guards liked you, you can, you know, pull your way into uh, a second, uh, like, thin mattress. So some of the guys had uh, two of them. I had, like, three. See, the way Lee managed to get himself extra mattresses was actually through his childhood skills with writing. He'd write these letters for the other guys, for their wives and girlfriends waiting for them on the outside. That's, it's commissary, all that stuff was like exchanged as currency, you know. Um, and I wrote, I used to write letters for people. And I used to write like love letters for their, and I have like really pretty cursive writing. 
And so I'd write these letters for guys and they'd give me their commissary, they'd give me like their, their sweets and stuff. And I trade that for this. And so like I kind of positioned myself in a way where it's like I was an important person that in a little space of like 30 dudes. Do you remember what you specifically traded for like those, the extra mattresses? Extra mattresses were honey buns. I traded like a week's worth of honey buns and, but I got a week's worth of honey buns from somebody else. So I had my own honey buns so I, that I wasn't giving up. But I had extra ones that I got from somebody else for writing something for them. Something worth mentioning here, and this will become important shortly, is that most of the inmates Lee met, in his experience, were indigenous. According to government statistics, as of 2020, 75 of inmates in Saskatchewan are of indigenous background. There was a story in the paper Star Phoenix about this. And so a lot of those their crimes had to do for like petty, like breaking and entering or alcohol or you know, and domestic stuff. There was one guy who in that nine months got out, I think like seven times and he'd be back the next day. And then again, you know, like it's like, what, what kind of life are they living? Indigenous people in Saskatchewan. Cause some dudes will tell you, Hey man, like it gets cold around X time of the year. So I figure out, you know, I'll do four months and that's three, what is it called? Three meals in a cot. And, and then I hit the sheets again. So they're crime. putting themselves yeah, to jail. Yeah, kind of know the crime to commit. You know, they'll go get drunk and go break something and kind of like wait for the cops to come, you know, and like do their four months and they'll get out just around the time it starts getting warm. And so that said, that speaks volumes as to the kinds of conditions Indigenous people are living in that town of Saskatoon. And I have really like a special place for, for the Indigenous people because of my first experience in jail. I was praying. While I'm praying, there's another guy who was praying Sudanese for love. We were the only two black guys in the whole, like, I think it was the whole, like, this side of the jail, like that wing of the jail. And they kicked the door behind him. It was in the laundry section. And they kicked the door behind him and they hit him and he fell over. And the, the native boy saw that, you know, and they, they worked that guy out good in the bathroom. And from then on, anybody, in, me and him, when we prayed, they walk us to uh, the bathroom stand, make sure we made our do. And then when we came, we'd pray and they'd stand with us. And like, not like pray, but like they made sure nobody came and did anything stupid. In return, Lee would attend their indigenous ceremonies. So at night, when lights are out there, if you want, you can go smudge. And this is a, a spiritual practice that indigenous people do. And so to show my respect uh, and like appreciation for what they were doing for us, like I, every night I would smudge with them, you know? And so you stand in a circle, you, you like the sweet grass and you pass it around and you, you know, you just say the things that you're thankful for for that day. And you know, some guys are just, they're just there not to be in their cell or their, their bunk anymore. So they're just like, oh, I'm glad I didn't like punch somebody in the face, you know? And some guys are actually like, they're really spiritual. So you know, they're like, I don't want to thank the, the spirits and all that. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm here, you know, cause you guys show love and I'm here to show love too. It's surreal to me, imagining a Muslim guy at an indigenous smudging ceremony. And so I asked Lee what kinds of reflections he'd share in that room with the other men. It's like, yeah, the same thing I say in my, my regular prayers. It's not always about asking for things, you know? Say, I'm the left for, for the situation you're in because God might be removing you from a situation to protect you from something, you know? Like that nine months I did, if I had looked at it like I was, oh my God, I, I'm away from my friends. Blah, blah, blah. In that nine months, I lost friends on the streets that I could have been with them. You know, I could, wow. uh, I could have very well be one of those guys who had gotten killed on the streets. So, you know, maybe uh, Allah was saving me from something by putting me through this test over here. And so uh, I'd always say Alhamdulillah for, for just another day above the ground. 
Besides writing and smudging, Lee had to find other ways to cope and stay busy for his own sake. You have to kind of disassociate yourself and kind of the outside you has to stay outside and the inside you has to do with what's in your, you know, and when you get in there, it's like it's your body, your, your physical body is the only thing that you worry about, right? Making sure that you leave intact, whole and alive. And, and yeah, so it's like it's protect yourself at all costs and. So whether you're going to do that physically or you're going to do that with intellect, that's all up to you, you know? I'm not the biggest and strongest of people, and so I use my intellect as a means of protecting myself. What do you mean by that? Honestly, man, I, like, I just escape. I, I utilize the skill that I had from when I was a kid, right? I used to disassociate myself from my reality by escaping into books and going somewhere else. And that allowed me a freedom... Um, that I wouldn't have experienced either otherwise, you know? And so I just did the same thing in jail. I remember, like, even dudes would come banging and be like, yo, Hassan, man, come do your time. And I'm like, you know, misery loves company, man. Leave me alone. I'm like, I'm in New York right now. Or mm. I'm in, you know, Timbuktu or whatever, whatever it was I was reading. And so I read damn near 100 books in that nine months. All I just did was read, 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 read. I read a lot of James Patterson, like, because obviously it's jail, you, you, you have crime novels. Anytime I, I'm isolated anywhere, that's how I, my form of escapism goes. These books took him to all kinds of places. He told me about one novel by Wilbur Smith that caught his imagination especially. And he had this series of books where it was like this dystopian, uh, like, Egyptian nation where it was like, but it was like set in like the super future and there was, um, humanoids and androids and living amongst each other so to see you know this book had uh different species of animals and and people and you know uh spider monkey people and you know it's like they all lived amongst each other and like they're at like hookah places you know like chilling together i truly believe in the like i am a like global citizen you know what i mean like i am on this planet and I, I, be, I don't belong to one particular tribe. I belong to the tribe of the planet, you know? Like, it's just, that's how my mind looks at the world. It's, we're all here together. What, what did that specific book or any of the books that you read, like, what did it, what did it do for you during those nine months? What did it provide you? It just provided a location that wasn't mine, you know, that wasn't my reality. It's like, there's a place I could look forward to going while I was there. It kind of reminds me of Narnia, right? It's like, you, you <laughs> yeah. go inside the closet. And then you're in a different world. Another thing that kept Lee calm and anchored during this time was his faith, especially praying. I need to pray and stuff, you know, like when you're in hardship, like pray, you know, and, and all that's a lot of uh, easier like situation. And, my, and you know what? Even if it doesn't ease your situation, like, it takes a, like, a weight off your shoulders, you know, like the, the anxiety leaves. Like I wasn't anxious in there, you know, when I was praying. Like when I wasn't praying, I was very anxious. There wasn't a lot of support for Muslims in that facility, at least at the time. For example, there wasn't a Friday prayer. There wasn't even halal food in there either. Halal was very like foreign to them, but kosher wasn't. So kosher is the closest thing. So I was like, yeah, I'll have kosher, you know. So with no Muslim chaplains in there, and really any other type of programming specifically for Muslims, Lee had to find other creative ways to spend his time and meet people. 
And so to get off the range every day, I'd go to Bible study because they had a Bible study down, like you go out and around the corner and like different ranges would let out like 10 guys at a time. And so that's how I got to know other dudes that were in other places. So I met another Somali guy and it turns out like we have a, <laughs> we share an uncle. Oh, what? You know, yeah, yeah. And, uh, he's like my agent. He's from like Toronto. Like we became cool. And, and so like we'd meet every day at 1 p.m. Bible study. Uh, these two Muslim kids, you know, there and and those guys from other religions, they're just way to go and chill. Like some dudes would pass each other like cigarettes and stuff like that. One of the other people that made an impact on Lee was actually mentioned earlier. One of the few Muslim guys in the entire facility. The Sudanese guy that was on the range was a Muslim. Uh, he was afflicted by drug addiction, and so you know, like on the street, we would have been two different people, but like in there, we were you know akin. So like we were chopping it up, talking. I'm like, man, like, you know, how'd you get into doing drugs, man? Like, we're not supposed to be the people that are doing the drugs, man. I'm like, but, like, you know, in my household, you sell drugs or you do drugs, it's the same thing, you know? Um, there's no hierarchy, you know, but we've convinced ourselves there's a difference uh, between the drug pusher and the drug user. But, you know, Jay-Z's Gangsta album, he has a song, he has a line in, that, in the song, Falling. It goes, the irony of selling drugs is sort of like you're using it. There's two sides. Like it's sort of like you're using it. I guess it's two sides to what substance abuse is. Wow. You know, and that really stood out to me. I'm like, you know, we were addicted. I was an addict. I was an addict to the lifestyle that came with money. And that's, you know, girls, partying, uh, the violence, or whatever. Everything that came along with fast money, I was very much addicted to at that stage of Remember earlier how Lee didn't have an address to collect bail from, either in Saskatchewan or in Alberta? Well, that kind of became a problem. Here's him explaining. He called me and he, he had a meeting with me on the phone uh, while I was in jail. And he's like, yo, like, if you get denied another bail hearing, you're not going to be eligible to go up for bail anymore. So that means you're going to have to sit and wait for your child date, which is in 18 months. And then it could get pushed back another six months and another six months. And you could just be there till trial and whether you get found guilty or not, you know, like even if you get found guilty, every day you're in there counts as time. There's only one person Lee Ban could reach out to in the situation, really reach out to, someone who was there since the beginning of the story, his aunt, who raised him when he first came to Canada. But calling her meant maybe hurting one of the people he loved most in the world. More than disappointing my own mother, like my biological mother, I'm always weary of disappointing her because she's who I identify with like, as my mom, you know? My uncle was harsh when I was growing up, but she was always the loving, like, she loved on us and doted on us, you know? Me and my brother, because we were her responsibility, her sister's kids, you know? And so I always identified this, like, unconditional love with my aunt. But at that point, he was running out of options. Remember, he's already done nine months in jail, so far almost a year. So he stuck with two options, either letting his family know where he was so they could post bail, or spending another year possibly two, inside. I was like, yo, am I going to do this waiting here in this freaking jail that I didn't want to be in? Hell no, this is my one opportunity, like my last opportunity. And so Lee made his choice. He talked to the prison staff to get access to a phone, picked it up, and dialed for Ottawa.
Thank you so, so much for listening to the first episode of our podcast. It's been over a year of hard work to bring this project to life. So if you enjoyed this and want to hear more, please consider subscribing and rating our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. And if you think creating art by and for the Canadian Muslim community is important, then please also share this episode with a friend. All of that really helps new shows like ours get listeners. This episode was produced by myself, Hussain, with editing and supervision by Toba Khalifa. The excellent sound design was done by Ramadullah Sheikh, who, I have to say, worked with some pretty rough audio. This interview with Lee was actually the first in-person interview I ever did, and I accidentally forgot to turn on his lapel mic. Thankfully, my mic caught his audio, and I learned my lesson. So if you listen all the way to the end, I promise all the next episodes are much, much crisper. You can listen to them on our website too, which is linked in the show notes and has transcripts. This podcast is a production by Islamic Family, a social services organization based in Edmonton, Alberta. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health issues, food insecurity, or some of the other things we talked about in today's episode and are in the Edmonton area, you can check out our website, islamicfamily.ca, to see our services and see if you can help. Thanks again for listening. I'm Hussein, and Lee's story will continue in the next episode of 25 Northeast.